Welcome to The Penny Drops, the Royal London podcast series simplifying finance to help more people, like you, make better informed money decisions. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London. Hello, I'm Andrea Fox, a journalist, a broadcaster and host of The Penny Drops, where I speak to some of the best financial experts out there. Now, this podcast was recorded during the coronavirus outbreak, so please excuse any sound issues as we are recording remotely. And for the latest information on financial support and benefits, visit gov.uk forward slash coronavirus. Now, in this episode, I'm speaking to Andy Webb, broadcaster, financial journalist and self-proclaimed money geek. He runs a personal finance blog called Be Clever With Your Cash. Today we're going to be talking about what you need to consider when buying a house, from mortgages and home buying schemes to those hidden costs and noisy neighbours. He also hosts the Cash Chats podcast, so he's going to be very well versed at this podcast chat today. Andy, thank you for joining me. Hey, Andrea, great to be here. Thank you so much. So first things first, uh, what's that phrase? Uh, uh, is it a home as your castle? What are the things we need to consider when we first buy a house then? How do we get ourselves prepared financially and practically? Well, well do you know what? First up, I think you've really got to think about, is it right for you? Because we do get caught up in that idea. Like you say, your home is your castle. That We've got to get up on the, on the housing ladder. It's, if you don't do that, you failed. But yeah, okay, it will likely save you money as you're paying into an asset rather than paying off your landlord's mortgage. But it is a big commitment. You know, I think most mortgages are for 25 years. So that's a, it's a long time and it's a lot of money and your life will change during that period. You know, you might be single right now, but maybe you'll meet someone and want to move in with them. You might want to have kids at some point. You might want to relocate, as lots of people have done over the, you know, thought about over the last year when they don't have to be in the big working places. So, you know, all those things, if you want to do any of that, well, you've got to sell before you can buy. There's no guarantee that's going to be easy. And having a property, it can tie you down as well, can't it? You might want to go traveling. Well, that mortgage still needs to be paid. Or if you lose your job, you've still got to pay the mortgage. So I think the most important thing people have to do there is to be happy with that, you know, when compared to renting, which does have that flexibility. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, I think, to start off with. And there are lots of countries where lots of people rent for a very long time, yeah, they don't do. they? Yeah, they yeah. do, So let's get into buying of property then. We are talking about that today. So first things first, credit scores. Is there a way that credit scores can impact your ability to buy a property? Yeah, they can be really important. So that credit score is kind of an indicator of what what the health of your credit report. And that's really what they're going to be looking at, the lenders. And that's going to give them that idea of, are you able to repay the money you borrow based on your previous experience of clearing debts, whether it's loans or credit cards or whatever it might be. So the better your credit report is, the more likely you'll get accepted for some of those mortgage deals, but also that you'll get offered lower interest rates, which which can save you a lot of money. So you do absolutely want to make sure that it's as healthy as it can be. There's lots of simple things you could do. We could probably do a whole episode talking about credit reports. But, you know, checking for errors, uh, what they do definitely say before applying for a mortgage is to try not to apply for any other credit at least six months before that mortgage application. Uh, any of those sort of things you can do to try and boost your score. But it isn't the only thing they'll use. Yes, it's an important part, but you know, you're going to have an application form which will have loads of data, loads of information. They want to, want to see things like bank statements uh, and pay slips as well. So it's not the only thing that they'll take into consideration. But yeah, it is really important to make sure you get it as, as healthy as it can be before you apply. Okay, yeah, we're going to get into some of the other sort of bits of paper that you need to gather together. But first up, I think most people will know you're going to need a deposit to buy a property. So what are some of the best ways to save up that big cash sum? 
It's hard, isn't it? I mean, you think about how expensive properties are and how much more expensive they've got. That means you know, you're going to need larger deposits to, to get those mortgages. But I think the best place to start for most people, if this is your first, you're talking about first time buyer, you've never had a property before, is to look at something called a lifetime ISA. So you can save up to £4,000 a year in that. And then you will get a 25% bonus each year for what's in there. So potentially it's a free £1,000 to go towards your deposit, which is great. There are some caveats though, so you definitely want to sort of look into this a little bit deeper, but the things like it's only open for people aged between 18 and 39, although you can keep paying into it until you're 49. Um, again, as I said, it's only for your first home. The property must le cost less than 450,000. There are other bits and pieces to check into it. And also if you don't use it towards your first home, maybe because the property's worth more than 450K, you can't use it, then actually there's a penalty to get that money out or you've got to leave it in there until you're 60. So it's worth, it's absolutely worth considering it if those things sound like they'll work for you, but it won't be for everyone. Beyond that, I mean, I'd be, yeah, you want to be saving on a regular basis, don't you? So I'd look at things called regular savers or monthly savers, but where you, as the name suggests, you put money aside every month for generally 12 months and it closes you can open up a new one but you'll normally get the higher interest rates there and also you're, you're committing to kind of doing that savings on a, on a monthly basis which will you know help you and then putting money separately as well but it, rather than you're sitting in your current account is in a separate place yeah keeping it separate i think is a very good tip now we've heard lots of different schemes and offerings for first-time buyers as we've already mentioned on the podcast house prices have gone up quite a lot in recent years so let's go through some of the pros and cons of things like help to buy shared ownership equity loans and not percent deposit options I mean, these really can help you if you've got a low deposit and it helps you get on that ladder I mean, you, you want to research these yourself because they are going to change. Again, we could depending. probably do a whole episode on each of those, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you could. And also, you know, they're going to change on where you live, on the type of property you buy, uh, all those kind of bits, pieces, the value of the property. There will be restrictions in there as well. But there, briefly, you know, help to buy is one that people uh, talk about a lot. This is where you borrow a chunk of the purchase price interest-free for a set amount of time. So you're owing, you know, you can get more money without getting charged the interest on it. Shared ownership is where you buy part of the home. So the rest of it is normally owned by someone like a housing association or a council. And then you are paying part of your mortgage because you've got that mortgage, that's yours. And then you're paying rent to the other people who have the shared part ownership. And later on, you can, you can buy them out. Or there's things like equity loans where you buy the whole home. So it's different to shared ownership because you are own the whole thing. But you are taking a loan out for part of that deposit. So the you know have a research into some of these things if you think you haven't got enough of a deposit to get outright your property these can really make a big difference okay so let's say we've worked out that we're able to buy a property let's get into that paperwork then what do you need to get together yeah so it's going to be a lot and i mean anyone who's done this previously before you know if they're going for a remortgage they realize it's a lot of paperwork you need to get uh it depends obviously who you're going for they might ask for separate things but generally you'll be looking at three months worth of bank statements three months worth of pay slips. You'll need a utility bill within the last three months as well. You know, proof of ID, such as your passport, your driving license. And there might be extra things that are asked for depending on your circumstances. So for example, if you're self-employed, you're not going to have the pay slips, but they might want to see certified accounts from the last three years, maybe just to sort of get a proof of your income. And it's not just to have this stuff. They will drill down. But those pay slips, uh, those bank statements, they will look at where your money is going. So you might want to kind of also think about exactly what the things you're doing ease up on some of those subscriptions or those you know takeaways because they want to see use this stuff to kind of get a sense of like actually you know this person is going to be able to afford those monthly payments on the mortgage yeah yeah totally so let's talk mortgages then what are they and how exactly do they work well houses are expensive right <laughs> well i mean not many of us have that cash do we 
<laughs> no, not many. Not unless you've happened to have won the lottery recently. <laughs> that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Then you could you know, buy, buy away. But most of us, we're going to need to borrow the bulk of that money. Uh, and a mortgage essentially is that it's a loan to help you buy a house over a long period. Usually this is 25 years, but you can have shorter mortgages. You can have longer ones as well. And I guess the longer the mortgage is, you're spreading out how long you're paying it back. So the interest you're going to add is going to be a lot more, but those monthly payments will, will be less. Uh, but that's that's basically what it is. So the mortgage lender actually owns your property until you've cleared this loan. So that's the other thing to consider. If you don't make those payments, then obviously the mortgage lender, whoever's given you that loan, they can obviously take it back from you. Yeah. So how can you check if you're actually eligible for mortgage? We talked about some of the paperwork, but is there a way you can check that you're actually eligible? Yeah, I mean, there, there are... It really depends on so many things. Uh, you know, your income, as we said, that's really important. Your expenses, existing debts, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there also depends how much you've got saved that deposit we talked about and how much you want to borrow. I think really this is about, uh, you know, you can look online, you can sometimes do what's called a soft check where they aren't doing a proper look at your credit report, they just give you an indication. But for most people, uh, and we'll probably talk about this more in a bit, a mortgage broker might be the best bet because they'll have a better understanding of some of those criteria and how you fit into it. And they'll kind of get an idea of ones you're more likely to, to get. Yeah. And and we've talked about maybe if you're self-employed, you might have to show a couple of years worth of bank statements and and sort of employment proof. But when it comes to what type of employment you're in, your income, and maybe, for example, furlough, how could that affect your eligibility for a mortgage? And lots of people listening may have been on furlough for a year now. Yeah. I mean, it's been really tough on on people anyway. And if they're looking to either remortgage or or get their their first mortgage, they might have to wait realistically until they're they're back on the payroll proper because some lenders have said they won't do this they won't give mortgages to people who are on furlough unless they've got proof that this person is going to come back on this date but we know that's quite a movable feast right now that could be any time um, and likewise you know some of them talk about self-employed people it's not just those certified accounts the last year their income for a lot of these people is going to be hit massively yeah, that, that would therefore impact just how much they'd be able to borrow because it is based on you know multiples of your income what you could have. Uh, some lenders have said they won't you know uh, give self-employed people a mortgage that has uh, at least a minimum forty percent equity or forty percent deposit. So it is a lot tougher right now for for people who have had their income hit by COVID. So how then might we go about working out what type of property you can afford with a mortgage? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, so, so notwithstanding those other upfront costs, it's largely about the, the size of your deposit and your monthly income. And I mean, I, you know, so I'm a money geek. I do get a little bit excited by something called LTV, which I know is a bit weird, but this is loan <laughs> to value. Uh, this is basically um, how much of your deposit you have. Let's say you have a 5 to pe- 5% deposit, 5% of the house value. That means you'll need a 95% of the money lent to you as a mortgage. And this is called the loan to value. So 95% of the mortgage is a 95% LTV. Now, the lower your LTV, the better deals you'll get. And, but generally, they do reduce in, in tiers. So uh, it might go 95 to 90 to 85 to 80 to 70, down as far as 60, which is that 40% deposit we talked about before. That's generally uh, the, the best ones. But say you have 25K saved up and you go for one of these 95 LTVs, that's maybe the first one you can get. Well, that means that the property you could get would be worth 500,000. If it's more than that and you don't have a larger deposit, then you're not going to have enough money for that deposit. Now, if it's worth 250000 then all of a sudden you've got an LTV of 90%. 
So you can't, that sort of gives you an indication and you'll get better deals by dropping down that tier. But once you've already got that in terms of just how much will your deposit go towards the value, you've also got to factor in those monthly repayments. So, so let's say you did borrow 90% of a 250K house. Over 25 years with a 3% mortgage, you'd pay just over a thousand pounds a month. So you need to work out, well, can you afford that? And there's, you know, you know your own income, what your salary is for you. If you've got a partner who's coming in with you on this or a friend, can you afford that? But things can change as well. So it's not just if you think you can afford it, it's also what the lender thinks if they think you can afford it. Yeah, and thinking ahead to be a bit flexible with that number rather than going for the absolute maximum, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Because if, if they're really at the limit, they won't give it to you. If they think that puts you literally on the line where one small change means you suddenly can't afford it, then they won't see you as someone who they want to, to lend to. So so what are the different types of mortgages that we can get then? Yeah, so there are a few different types. The main ones are fixed and variable. And the names kind of explain it in lots of ways. Fixed means the rate won't change for a set time. So usually that's between two and five years, but you, you can fix for, for longer if you want to. And that will give you some certainty. You know exactly how much you are going to be paying every single month. But you are locked in. So if rates do drop elsewhere, then you can't really do anything about it. Variable though, it, it can change. Um, you might also find there's an introductory discount on top of that, a discount mortgage where let's say the variable rate is, I don't know, 5% and they give you a 2% discount for the first six months or the first year. Well, obviously then you'll pay 2% less for that period. There are a few others that are worth sort of thinking about. A tracker mortgage, it's kind of a mix of the two. It's a fixed rate on top of the Bank of England base rate. So let's say it was, I don't know, 2.5% plus base rate right now with a base rate at 0.1%. You pay... 2.51% and that would sort of can be again for a set amount of time or it could possibly be for the whole term of the mortgage. Well, there's something quite interesting called offset mortgages, which again won't be for, for, for lots of people. But if you have a huge amount of savings, an offset mortgage links your mortgage to a savings account and any money you have in that savings account temporarily reduces how much you will pay interest on. So if you have uh, a lot of money there, it just means you're paying less interest every single month. That is a lot more mortgages than I thought we would have <laughs> in the list, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. Well, there are more as well. I mean, you could, there's specialist ones as well for different circumstances, but they're the, the main ones that people will come across. And and just to specify, if, if this is, you know, first time buyers are listening, those rates you talk about, that's the interest. So the extra little bit you'll be paying on top of um, the, the paying back of what you've borrowed, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because when we talked about what a mortgage is earlier on, obviously, they're not going to give you that money for free, are they? They're going to charge you for it. So that interest rate uh, is a really important one to look at because it's a lot of money, as we said, a lot of money you're borrowing for a long time. So it really can add up to a decent amount of money. You're not just paying the value of the house, you're paying the bank as well. And this is why it's helpful to sometimes speak to someone who is a mortgage broker. So let's talk about this. How can you find one? Yeah, there are, there are all sorts of ways of doing this. And it's moved on a lot in the last few years. I mean, traditionally, you would think about going to a person, an individual who would be your broker, and you would chat to them about stuff. And you can still do that. And there are all sorts of uh, websites like Unbiased and Vouched For, which can help you find people near you. If you want to do that person-to-person, face-to-face thing, obviously, you can do that online now, as we do. There are some big organizations, but there are also some sort of apps and fintech solutions, which I always kind of got quite interested in, sort of digital ones, um, brands like Habito and Trussell, where it's all done online via an app. But essentially, what these brokers are doing, whether they're a real person or whether it's all online, is they are looking across 
most of, if not all, the market and trying to find those best deals. And they're also using the knowledge that they have to go work out which ones are going to be best for you and your circumstances. So you don't have to use one. Obviously, you can if you've had a look at different uh, comparison sites or directly with different providers, found one that you like. You can just apply straight off. But obviously, there is the risk there that you'll get rejected. So for most people, and particularly anyone who's got some sort of more sort of circumstances which aren't sort of traditional for whatever reason, then uh, a mortgage broker can be a good thing to do. And just check that they are, if they're charging a fee, what it is, some of them won't charge you anything at all because uh, they get a commission from the, the lenders themselves. And also have a think about, uh, are they going to look at just certain deals because they might only look at a certain part of the market or are they looking at a large part of it or all of it? Just so you get a real sense of, of what it is that you're using them for. Yeah. And what would be your top tips mortgage-wise for non-first-time buyers? Because we focus so much, don't we, on that first-time buyer. And I think when you actually come round, when you've, you've been that, you've gone through that process and you suddenly go around to uh, you know, moving again or remortgaging or whatever it might be, you kind of think, oh, what, there's not really that much information out there. Yeah, a I'm on my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you know what? It's A lot of it's the same information. It's the same stuff. The big thing I would say is those affordability checks where they go through all your spending habits and looking at your income and stuff, you've got to do that again. And it could be a lot harsher than when you last applied. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the cha- rules changed a while ago now, but if, you haven't, if you've been on a fix for a long time, for example, or just on a variable rate for a long time, it could well be that they look at your what you've got and they go, well, actually, no, we aren't going to offer you this mortgage or that mortgage because we don't think you can afford it. And there are ridiculous situations you get where some people are trapped on a very expensive mortgage because they fail these affordability tests, even though the new mortgage would be a lot cheaper for them and cost them less money. <laughs> That seems awful. It is. It's absolutely ridiculous. So you just got to be prepared for that. And that means also doing all the things that you can do. So, you know, tidy up your spending, checking your credit report, like we said, you know, uh, clearing out any debts, just to put yourself in the best possible position. Lovely. And you mentioned remortgaging there. So what exactly is it? And why is this something that people might consider? Yeah, so... Most people, when they get that mortgage, it's generally going to be, uh, like we said, talked about those fixes, the two years, three years, five years, whatever it might be, or it's a discount for a set amount of time, whatever it might be. When that ends, generally, you'll be moved on to the standard variable rate mortgage. And generally, the standard variable rate mortgages are going to be quite expensive compared to what you can get elsewhere. It's like when we talk about switching your energy, fixing for them, and then Mm. all these kind of things to talk about. It's the same principle. So once you've fix has ended, you're going to want to look for a better deal probably to try and save yourself some money. But you might also uh, want to uh, borrow money against the property. You might have talked about those um, loan to value tiers that we had. You know, if you've been putting money into the property over time, obviously your equity, so your deposit is your initial equity, but the money you put in there, that's going to increase your equity. Your property might have gone up in value as well. So all of a sudden you've got more equity there. So you might be able to get yourself onto a better loan to value tier and access even better deals so it's it's definitely something everyone should be thinking about and the big reason obviously is to save yourself money to pay less interest yeah so on top of that mortgage that we've talked about now every month what other housing costs should homeowners be aware of yeah i mean most people i would have thought if they've been renting before they would have been paying most of the bills that you you would get but just it is worth checking there's anything's been included sometimes you might find that you know your energy bills are included in the rent or whatever so you just got to be prepared so you know exactly what was clearly and what you're going to have to pay the big new one for first time buyers is going to be buildings insurance and that's going to be required by pretty much all lenders uh, so you're going to have to have this and this is the insurance which covers the bricks and mortars so we might have content insurance already 
which insures us. The name says the things you own, but the building's insurance will cover you for you know if something was to go wrong with the actual building. Um, if you are going to be a leaseholder, and I know we'll probably cover this a bit as well, there could be some extra charges that come with that, service charges, admin fees, even ground rent that you might need to pay. So just make sure you're fully aware of anything that comes specific to the, the, the property that you're, you're buying. And so for people who haven't been through the process of buying a house before, what is the actual process? What's the timeline? So it, <laughs> there are a lot of stages. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're like only halfway through all the stages. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things that people don't always know about uh, before you even put in the offer to the house or whatever is to get something called an agreement in principle, or sometimes it's called a mortgage in principle, and that's with your lender. So you've obviously gone through that stage with the mortgage broker and you found some people who might lend to you and stuff. You kind of want to do that before you, you put in a, uh, an offer because that might actually be uh, one of the differences with knowing that you can afford this property that actually will give you the money for it. It's not a guarantee, it's an in principle, so you, they could change their mind for whatever reason. They might not like the property itself and not think it's worth what you uh, have offered they might think that you uh, don't meet their affordability checks but do that first of all have that available and it's normally valid for around 90 days then you can put in the offer they find that house that you love you put in the offer hopefully it gets accepted although you know from my experience that's not <laughs> as simple as that not always <laughs> <laughs> but if it does or eventually get the one that they accept it that's when this kind of this admin stage starts. So then there's a load of work, that full mortgage application that you've got to go through. They will you know, want to value the property, them, the lenders, and they'll be checking you as well. You need to get a solicitor uh, who will do all sorts of things like searches and be dealing with the seller solicitor as well. And this is one of those areas where you shouldn't go cheap. Uh, I've made that mistake personally. Thought I had a great really? deal with someone, and it <laughs> it was awful. It was absolutely awful, and um, we a lot of hassle and stress uh, that we went through because our solicitor just wasn't up to the job. Obviously, if you've got word of mouth, that's the best thing if you know someone, but that's not always available. And then also, you might want to get, and I think it's really important you do this something called a property survey. So you do this kind of admin. Once that's all in place, everyone's happy. The lender's happy this list is happy you're happy because the results of the surveys and things then you're on that final stretch and this is where you go these, these two big names that people these words that people might hear but not really know what they are you have the exchange and this is where you exchange contracts and this basically means there's no going back or if you do pull out or they pull out then you're going to forfeit a lot of money it's going to cost you a lot of money um, and then when that goes through you really you're waiting through to completion and sometimes it is possible to do those very very close together but normally there's a bit of a gap in between but completion that is when all the money is sent over to the uh, to the person you're buying from and you get the keys and you move in and that can take time. It's, it's all those stages, it can take time. You know, people try to rush it and sometimes they do, but often mistakes happen when you do that. Yeah, and I think after the completion, then worry about the soft furnishings because sometimes I feel like that comes at the start. <laughs> <laughs> people have things the wrong way around. Um, so we hear the word chains and chains falling down when it comes to house properties. How does the property chain work and how can it impact your purchase? Yeah, so uh, this is when chains are, are when sales and purchases are linked. So, uh, you know, you're buying off someone, and if they're buying off someone, if they're buying on someone, it, you know, it, it could go on for a long, long, long time. And if one of those purchases falls down, then the whole chain could go as well. So ideally, I mean, there's it, it not always a huge amount you can do here, particularly as a first time buyer, but it can help to keep that chain small because it reduces the risk of that happening. Obviously, you're yeah, buying a new build. If you're going straight in, there is no chain. So you're kind of, that's it. Nice and easy and a simple thing to do. Um, or potentially it's buying off someone. If you can, that you know that they're going to a new build or to, there's no onward chain or whatever it might be is great. 
actually, as a first-time buyer, you can be quite attractive to a seller. If they've got two bids coming in, two offers which are the same, and one person's got a chain of two or three houses behind them and you're just you, then that also gives you that little bit of a, a boost potentially because they go, right, I'll take them, same amount of cash, but at least I know there's, there's less of a risk of things collapsing. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a phrase I've heard as well. Being, you know, being a first time buyer is, is good for that reason. Uh, and when we're searching for property, what sort of things should people be on the lookout for? What I mean, noisy neighbours, is there a way you can check for things like that and good schools and what are the sort of red flags that you would look oh, for? There's so much. There's so, so many things <laughs> that you, it's going to be very, very hard, I think, to, to do it perfectly and not miss anything. There are a huge number of really good checklists available online. And I would absolutely get one of these for when you're viewing a property. So it'll help you to remember the things to look for, like signs of damp or you know what kind of the, the water pressure or small things like that. Um, so they're, they're really, really useful. Uh, but think about the area too. Like you said, uh, you know, noisy neighbours how do you know about that? I mean, the sellers aren't going to tell you. <laughs> they have nightmare people <laughs> next door. I mean, they have to tell you if there's been any sort of proper disputes or anything. But if it's just someone's, you know, you can hear the walls of paper thin. I mean, you, you ideally just got to be there when that's happening for you to know if that is going on. I mean, I generally would say it's worth visiting at different times of the day and the week because you get a sense of how the area changes. But right now, that's all going to be a little bit artificial because we're in lockdown and people aren't going about their normal way of life so it's tough to say really whether it's going to be better at day or evenings um and other things you can think about uh, yeah like if you have kids or you're even if you're thinking of ha- about having kids you might want to check about the quality of the schools and what the catchment areas are uh, things like flight plans are there commercial areas nearby like pubs are closed right now but when they reopen if there's one around the corner is it going to keep you awake so have a think about as much as you can about not just what's inside but also what's around you yeah. And we mentioned these phrases a little bit earlier, but leasehold and freehold, what do they both mean and what do they mean for the buyer? So uh, a freehold, it means you own the property outright, including the land it's built on. And pretty much most houses, but not all of them, most houses, you will get the freehold when you buy the property. It's yours. A leasehold means that somebody else owns that land or even they own the actual building, the whole building. So you often get this with flats, you know, because you're just buying your flat, but there's a whole building <laughs> above and below and next to you lots of flats yeah. attached to you yeah <laughs> um, now you uh, the problem you get here is that leasehold isn't indefinite it ticks down it can't dropping down and if it drops below 80 years it can be hard to sell it both because lenders aren't so keen to, to give money for that but also people might be sort of scared off by how short that leasehold is so it's vital to check what that is um, you can ask for it to be extended. And if you've lived somewhere for two years, do you have the right to extend it by 90 years? But you do have to pay for this. It's not just the, hi, can I have this for a little bit longer? You will have to pay for it. So really, really, really be careful with that stuff. And, and obviously, if you're going into a flat, you'll be aware of this stuff. But do double check on houses because, OK, sometimes they do have that. And there could be extra costs as well with anything with a leasehold ground rent you might have to pay service charges, you know, the communal areas that everyone kind of contributes to, you know, what happens if they decide they want to paint the whole building. Often they might ask people to all contribute towards that. So find out what all the, all the, what the deal is with those. Yeah, and we've talked about some of the costs on top of the mortgage, but what are the other costs that we should be aware of when it comes to buying a house? Yeah, in I mean, total? <laughs> again, there are a lot of these that you wouldn't necessarily know about because we think, as you say, you start off, all oh, right, well, I've got 
the the deposit is all I need. But then you might think, oh, well, no, hang on. Oh, the, oh, right. Hang on. There's stamp duty. Okay. And then you find out that the mortgage itself has a fee attached. Not all of them do, but often there's some fees you have to pay on that. A valuation fee, again, to the, which the lender will require you to pay for them to check exactly how much it's worth. Those surveys that we talked about, the legal fees that come into play, you've got to pay for those. Uh, then that's just actually the buying <laughs> the house. You, you know, you've got to move. You know, so does that require a van? Does that require people to help you move? Does that require storage? You know, if you've got more stuff than you can fit in the new place or if there is a gap for whatever reason. And one of the things, you know, if you're renting, one of the benefits of renting is if something breaks, you just get on the phone and you get someone to come and fix it. You're going to have to do that as well. So you need to budget for that. And that's going to be, when you move in, you'll be surprised. There will be things you want to fix straight away, let alone the stuff that's going to come along later on. There'll be stuff you'll need to get sorted immediately. And you, know, you mentioned about people sort of start thinking about furnishings early on or whatever it is. This is actually, you might need to buy new furniture. You might need to redecorate. So you need to have some money set aside and that can all add up a huge amount. Yeah, totally. I mean, you mentioned repairs there. I know people who've moved into older Victorian buildings who, I don't know whether this is what's recommended, but they immediately redo all of the electrics, which is a massive thing that you need to kind of be aware of if you're getting period properties and how old all that stuff is that you might have to shell out for as soon as you set foot in the door and you get the keys, right? We, so- we actually had that happen to us. The uh, The survey said it was all fine, hadn't been. And actually the rewiring, we, it was a lot of money to get it done, which, yeah, fortunately we had it, but it was a huge expense. So this is where, to try and avoid some of that stuff, ideally, you know, pay that a little bit more for a better survey. You know, they look at everything. They look at the roof. They maybe bring some things back. It's not going to be perfect. They will have all sorts of caveats where they say, well, we couldn't check this because of X or Y. But pay that up front and it could well save you buying something which actually requires, I don't know, replacement of, you know, fixing rot on all the windows or whatever it might be, particularly, as you say, with with older things. Yeah. And talking of um, sort of very expensive things, stamp duty. Um, what is it and why so, should so buyers stamp duty be aware is a tax. of it? Now, it's actually only called stamp duty in England and Northern Ireland. It's called the Land and Buildings Transaction Tax in Scotland and the Land Transaction Tax in Wales. And it does operate differently in all those different places. So you want to sort of check exactly what those those rates are going to be depending where you live. But, but essentially, this is a tax you pay on the property when you buy it, and it's tiered. So, for example, in England and Northern Ireland, the, the standard stamp duty rate is the first 125k of the property. There is no stamp duty. So if you bought a property that was £125,000, you would pay no stamp duty at all. But the next 125k, you'd pay 2% on, but only of that bit, that next tier up. Then it goes up 5% on the next chunk and, and so on. And, and similarly, it works different levels uh, depending where you are in the, in the UK. But they also can go down uh, or up. So if you're a first-time buyer, then you don't pay anything on the first £300,000. Uh, whereas if you an additional property, you've already got one or two or three or however many you've got, then you're going to pay additional stamp duty higher. You don't just pay the same amount, you pay extra on top. Now, the thing here is obviously we've had a stamp duty holiday due to COVID where the first £500,000 in England and Northern Ireland is exempt which has been extended in the March budget. So that will obviously make it a lot you know, a cheaper time to, to potentially buy a house. But what we have seen is with everyone trying to move because of this stamp duty holiday, the prices have increased. So you may well find that you've actually saved money on one hand, but you're actually paying more because of what this has you know, brought along. Yeah, and you mentioned the pandemic, of course, and the stamp duty holiday. Um, we also had um, a mortgage holidays as well. So how has COVID-19 impacted the housing market? The prices have jumped up because of the stamp duty holiday but if you are someone trying to to buy as well it has been a lot harder to get a mortgage you know there have been a far fewer mortgage deals available you know the, the numbers have just you know fallen massively and then there's often been stricter criteria 
So you know, not lending to people, some banks, because uh, they're self-employed or not, lend, not taking uh, bank of mum and dad um, contributions in some cases. You know, there's lots of things that have happened to different lenders at different times over the last year. So it has been very difficult to, to maybe get a mortgage. But there have also been some very low rates. You know, interest rates, the base rate of interest, as we say, is very, very, very low. And that has often been reflected in some of the mortgages that are available. So if you, you know, could get a mortgage or remortgage, whatever it might be, it could be a, you know, a great time and still a good time to kind of bring down exactly how much you're, you're, you're paying on every month. Mm. And we've had a this has been a brilliant whistle stop of everything to do with buying a property. But as we're nearly at the end of the episode now, Andy, if there were just a few top takeaways you really want people to remember from this podcast, what would it be? What are your top words of wisdom? You know what I would say? It's never too late to get your finances in order ahead of a move. You know, if it's on the cards, whether this year, next year, or a couple of years from time, you know, do what you can now to, to get yourself in the best possible position to get the best possible mortgage. So the key one there is that credit report that we started talking about. You get that as strong as it possibly can be. And then save as much as you can because those LTV bands that we spoke about, the loan to value bands, if you can just get, you know, an extra, say you needed two grand to suddenly drop on that deposit to move yourself to the next one, you will save that and more over the course of the mortgage by getting the lower interest rate. So they're, they're my top ones, I would say. Excellent, excellent. I feel like I've learned so much and I've and I've already I bought a flat before. <laughs> there's so many things I didn't know that you've just taught me. Um, but we do always ask our guest, Andy, for a little bit of advice. Think back to your 18-year-old self. If you could give 18-year-old Andy some advice, what would it be? Do you know what? I'm, I'm 41 now and uh, I'm more and more feeling the creaks <laughs> and things like that. Oh. <laughs> I, so I would tell my 18-year-old self, do something like yoga or Pilates. Just do it on a regular basis. Just do it. You'd have been very ahead of the curve, I think. Uh, do it doing yoga but I, I completely agree with that keep keep bending yes <laughs> it's just going to get worse now as, as the years add on <laughs> <laughs> oh Andy Webb thank you so much for joining me on The Penny Drops it's a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to this episode of The Penny Drops we hope you learned something new and useful to help you with your finances we'd love to hear what you think of the series so please do leave us a review or if you have any comments or money questions you'd like us to cover you can get in touch at the penny drops at royallondon.com. This podcast series is brought to you by Royal London, the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London. Royal London.